right, anyone excited to be at church? Every single week we get to gather and celebrate the goodness of our God. And whether you are here at Carmel or at one of our campuses, uh, we're just thrilled that you've joined us for week two uh, of bumping into Jesus. That the reality is you don't have to show up to church to bump into Jesus. I mean, you can bump into him while you're stuck in traffic in the minivan. Right? You can bump into them while you're at youth sports wanting to heckle the ref, and God might say, ah, you, you don't want to do that, right? Like Jesus, he, he shows up in random places, and you, you find that along the way you have these divine encounters. Have you ever discovered a divine encounter? That along the way, God showed up in my life, and he got my attention. And I believe that can be true and a reality for every single one of us. And my prayer and my agenda in this sermon series is maybe just to get you to live with your eyes wide open, to look for moments where Jesus might do remarkable things in and through your life. And so to all of our campuses, welcome. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. Recently here at Carmel, we hosted uh, the Big East Conference cross-country meet. And it was uh, last weekend, it was raining, and I had the privilege of riding in the lead cart. And shout out to Marty, the driver, which I tell people, and it's probably good for some of you to know in case we ever have an interaction, anything you say and do can and will be used against you in a sermon. Right? There, there are some rights uh, to this deal that whatever you say or do, it, it can be used against you. It's material. When you are developing a message for the same folks every seven days, well, you got to freshen it up a little bit. And we were in this cart. Rain's coming down. And the ground's muddy and there's puddles everywhere and we're coming on this one stretch and you see the runner start to deviate a little bit. And Marty made the statement, he said, they're, they're looking for traction. And he had all these running terms and I was asking him for clarity and I said, explain that. And he said, well, when it's wet like this, they, you know, they're slipping around out there and so they're looking for places where they can get a good footing so they can gain traction. And I get the feeling as we gather, some of you, you've been well, you've been spinning out in life, and maybe this is your first time joining us here at Northview. Know that this is a place where you can gain some traction. You ever found that this is a place where you can gain some traction, that life came with some hurdles and, and life came with some slippery paths and, and you slipped, you fell, but you got back up again and it was the community of faith that came around you that provided a space for you to develop and generate some momentum in your life. Because here's what I'm convinced of, and here's what I know to be absolutely true. And that is this. Jesus not only makes life better, but he makes you and he makes me better at life. Jesus not only makes life better, he makes us better at life. And my challenge to some of you, if not all of you, is would you lean into this Jesus of ours? Also that you can discover the abundant life he died to give you. Jesus thinks you're worth dying for. And that ought to mean to us, he's worth living for. Can I get an amen, church? He is worth living for. Now, have you ever had someone try to tell a story and you find yourself a couple minutes into this story thinking, where are we going with this? You're thinking to yourself, land the plane. Ever had that conversation? This message is going to feel like that. In about seven minutes, you're going to think, all right, brother, land the plane. Where are we going? But I promise you, uh, this plane lands. 
but if we come down too quickly, it'll cause some turbulence. It may even cause some confusion. We're going to get there together. I ask for your patience along the way. But as we jump into it, it had me thinking about this time we were driving as a family. My dad got pulled over. And he got pulled over for drunk driving. And the police officer comes to the window and begins to initiate what would become a field sobriety test. The only problem was my dad wasn't drunk. In fact, he hadn't had an ounce to drink. He's just a terrible driver. (laughs) And the assumption was inaccurate. I say that because in that moment, there was an assumption being made about my earthly father that was wrong. In 40 years uh, since he gave his life to Christ, not a drop of alcohol has touched his lips. It was an inaccurate assumption because of what they were observing. And I get it, and I give the police officer grace. I would have pulled him over too. But I find in my life that as I interact with other followers of Christ, and even as I interact with individuals who don't believe in Jesus Christ, there are people who are making inaccurate assumptions about my heavenly father. You're wrong in what you're assuming about this God. Some of you have you know, painted a picture of him in your mind that he's some cosmic killjoy out to rob you of joy and thrill and pleasure in this life and you have no idea uh, how far from the truth that actually is. That he's not a maniac, but he's a, he's a good, good father. He's a gentle, loving savior. And he's brilliant in his creative ability to, to weave his, his redemptive plan in our life is it's just remarkable. You may have it wrong in some areas of your life. And chances are you may have it wrong in the area we're going to talk about tonight. Now bear with me as we jump into some scripture. But there's this passage in John chapter 2. And it says, on the third day, which when you read scripture, you got to pay attention to patterns. Jesus does some pretty impressive things on the third day. Like if I ever hang out with Jesus 72 hours later, I'm looking for him. Like where's he at? Like he just, he does things on the third day. And there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also, say it with me, invited to the wedding with his disciples. I love this idea that Jesus was at a wedding. Jesus would attend parties. That's why when I get up to preach, I often say, welcome to the party. Because I, ought, I think that church ought to be a, a celebration of God's goodness. And what you find is Jesus would attend these gatherings. And he was the life of the party. People zeroed in on him. And what you should know about our Jesus is people who are nothing like Jesus wanted to be around Jesus. And Jesus wanted to be around people who are nothing like him. So for the person who showed up reluctant, feeling like you don't fit in, just know you would love this Jesus. And what I love about this is it says Jesus was invited. Church, what you need to know is Jesus works by invitation, not by invasion. You will hear me say this often. He is a gentleman. He doesn't pry his way in. He doesn't force his way into our life. He does not work by invasion. He works by invitation. And that is such a beautiful reality. That he's so gentle, so accommodating, so patient, so willing to travel with us in life. And awaiting each and every one of our invitations to say, Jesus, would you go to work 
in my life? Have you extended an invitation to God? Maybe for the first time or maybe just for the next time. God, would you go to work in this area of my life? Jesus was invited. What I love about it is it also says that Jesus was there with his disciples. Jesus was there with his disciples and up until this point, Jesus had already called five disciples to follow him. Which Jesus just goes rogue and doesn't play by any rules because there's a plus one rule on a wedding invitation. He shows up with five others, right? But I think it works out for those who invited them because it tells us this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Remember those movies growing up where there was always a disclaimer knowing that kids were watching the show? And the disclaimer was, do not try this at home. This is one of those passages that should come somewhere in the margins. Don't try this at home. If your mom tells you to do something, young folks, don't turn to her and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? In my house, you would have got karate chopped in the neck. Kung Fu Mama would have come out in a second. I think sometimes we, we read scripture too dimensionally. We read it black and white. We don't peer into the personality. We don't peer into the playfulness and, and just the humor of our God. And what you find is this request, hey, they've ran out of wine. It echoed something in Jesus' heart. Wait a second. My hour has not yet come. I almost in my mind get the feeling that there had been an ongoing conversation between Jesus and his mother Mary about when he would initiate his earthly ministry and when he would begin his march to the cross. And I'm guessing they went back and forth about the timing and this is actually the first moment, the first miracle in Jesus's ministry. It's almost like Jesus saying to his mom, oh, now you're okay with this. Now you're okay with me leaning in and beginning my ministry. It's like when you first get your license, your parents don't ever want you to drive until there's an errand that they need you to run, right? You can't go to your friend's house, but you can go get some eggs, right? Now you want me to. My hour hasn't come. He goes on to tell us this. He says, his mother said to the servants, because a good mom ignores their child, right? She just blows past what he says and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. My goodness, you could unpack that one statement. Your life would be radically different and radically better if you just did this. If God said it, so be it, I believe it. And if I ever get in an argument with Jesus and I win, I lose. So whatever he says, that settles it in my book. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Goes on to say, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it, had come, uh, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone 
serves the good wine first. I love this because it's the father of the bride heckling, right, the new groom. Like this new son-in-law of mine's an idiot. Like you made a mistake. No one does this, right? Maybe you've had the conversation. It goes on to say, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The first of this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That is a fascinating portion of scripture. What's amazing is it says that Jesus is there with his disciples. Now, how many has he called to follow him? Five. Five plus one is six. Just so happens there's six jars right there within reach. Guys, don't overlook the details of Scripture because Jesus is so intentional, so brilliant, and everything he does has a purpose. And there these six gentlemen stand before these six jars. And I can't help but wonder or speculate because if I was in the room, I would have said it. Look, there's one for each of us. I would have said that. Sometimes I hope when we gather as a church, we think the same thing. Look, there's, there's some for each of us. There's grace for each of us. There's purpose for each of us. There's, there's peace for each of us. There's a plan and redemption for each of us. There's a savior for each of us. There's, there's one for each of us. There's a promise for each of us. God, Taylor fits his grace to your life and to mine. There's some for each of us. Now, again, I'm, guys, I'm simple-minded. And this verse tells us some things. One, it tells us that Jesus makes wine. I think it's going to come up. There it is. In addition to that, Jesus makes a lot of wine. And the third thing, Jesus makes a lot of really good wine. I mean, that's, if you're just taking the passage at face value, that's what you get. Jesus makes wine. Jesus makes a lot of wine. Jesus makes a lot of really good wine. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. It's like 700 bottles of wine. Now, I didn't do the miracle. I just did the math, right? Now, here's what will trip some people up. And here's where we get exposed as followers of Christ. I believe one of Satan's biggest, most effective strategies in our life is destruction by distraction. You ever find some folks get distracted? Have you ever found that you get distracted? Before you know it, we start making lesser things the most important thing. Before we know it, we get distracted and we start fighting over things that don't carry the weight and draw us from focusing on what God wants us to draw us to. That happens all the time with this passage. Because in the community of faith, people are split. There's a lot of different thoughts on, on drinking and we're not going there today. But here's what you need to understand about this passage. This is not to say that our God is a drinker. This is to say our God is a thinker. Oh, come on, you got to track with this. This is not to say our God is a drinker. This is to say our God is a thinker. And he's in this moment and he's weaving a, a form of logic into the, the situation. Hey, as you think of this, this is how I work in your life. I want you to understand something. There's a, there's a thought that is permeating in this moment that you have to gr grab a hold of. It's, it's not about drinking. It's about thinking. It's how does God work in your life. And this is where, again, we, 
we make the wrong assumption. Now we're going to jump around a little bit. Hold that thought. Goes on to another passage in John chapter 12. And Jesus replied in a conversation, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Goes on to tell us, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So here, within a a 10 gap, 10 chapters, right? A gap between 10 chapters. Jesus' mom says, hey, they ran out of wine. It, It triggers something in Jesus. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 12, three years later. You should know that. This is three years later. Which if you ever want to know the difference between you and the God you serve, consider what you're doing in 36 months at noon on a Tuesday. He did. He knew. He had it down to the hour when and how he was going to accomplish his work. And what's amazing is what's the hour he's talking about? He's talking about the hour that he would be crucified, that he would be absolutely crushed, and he would die a vicious death. Why? So you and I could live a victorious life. The hour in which he would be crucified, publicly shamed, mocked, tortured, and executed. And what's strange is he says the hour has come for me to be glorified. It doesn't seem to make sense. And here's what's challenging. The hour that was most glorifying to God is the hour that would have been the most horrifying to us. Is that not strange that you have the glorifying and the horrifying in tandem together? Is that even possible? Which is a great question to think about. Is it possible for the horrifying to be glorifying? You got one more verse in you? Check this one out. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The statement in there that just sticks out to me is this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. I love that word fixing. It makes me wonder, is there any chance that our perspective is broken? Fix our eyes. Well, God, does that mean that our perspective and how we're looking at things might be wrong? And I have found in my life and in my journey with Christ, at times I've been viewing things incorrectly. And I wonder, and chances are today, Some of you will discover you have been viewing things incorrectly. The other night, we got to go to our first Colts game. And we're now Colts fans. Unless you face the Packers in the Super Bowl. But I'll split custody with you, and I will pull for the Colts unless they're playing God's team. That is why we have a G on our helmet. It's God's team. Nonetheless, we are... We're at the game, and 
as you can imagine, I'm having these conversations with my kids, and one of the conversations is about the horseshoe. And so we're talking about the horseshoe. And my son, who is just really, you know, I don't know, he's amusing, thought-provoking, curious, intuitive. Cannon said, so you're telling me we put shoes on horses' hands? That's a good question. Does the horse have shoes on their hands? And then it hit me. What if it's actually that they have gloves on their feet? None of you have weird conversations with your kids? I have weird conversations with my kids, but who knows? Maybe we're looking at this wrong. Do they have shoes on their hands or do they have gloves on their feet? It's a strange conversation, but is there any possible way we're looking at this wrong? Here's what I'm driving home, church. We, we take on a relationship with Christ and we really fixate on verses where in scripture, Jesus would say, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't bear much fruit. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, right? And what you find is God uses this, this metaphor and this illustration of growing fruit in our life. Have you ever found that? In fact, in churches and in spaces and circles that are communities of faith, we love to talk about growing fruit. In fact, we become so passionate about it, some folks think it is their job to be fruit inspectors, right? And they go around with license just trying to judge everybody's fruit. Yeah, that'll preach. <laughs> but here's the challenge. Along the way, you, you put in all this work, you stay to the course, you, you're diligent, you're trying to honor God, you're trying to, to walk in this path that aligns with his will, and, and you're trying to take God's word for what it is. And then life strikes, and you're crushed. I, I mean, come on, church ought to be the most honest place on the planet. Have you ever been crushed like life was doing, going pretty well. And you were doing pretty good. And then you got crushed. I mean, you've always cared about your health and then, then comes cancer. I mean, you worked years to build a great business and then COVID topples the whole thing. I mean, you try and you try to raise good kids and then one of them just decides, well, they're gonna veer hard right. And as a parent, you just agonize over what becomes of their life and, and you're crushed. You didn't see it coming. You worked so hard to produce in your mind what was fruit. And then you get crushed. And here's the deal, if you've never been crushed, heads up, at some point you will be. Because you don't have to go looking for trouble. Trouble knows where to find you. And life will be a lot easier for you the moment you accept that it's just hard. Life, it comes with pain. It comes with agony. It comes with trials. It, it, comes, with some, it comes with some moments that'll rip your heart out. Can we acknowledge that? And it's in those moments that we start to make inaccurate assumptions about our God. And here's the thing, church. One, 
When you can't trace the hand of God, well, we'll go there first. That's fine. Don't undermine God's character when you don't understand God's conduct. Do not undermine God's character when you don't understand God's conduct. Now we'll throw up the next one. When you can't trace the hand of God, you must trace the heart of God. When you can't trace the hand of God, you must trace the heart of God. When you don't understand what he's doing, you remember who he's been. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I promise you, you'll get down the road no matter what you go through. And like the song we sang, you will discover that surely goodness and mercy are running after you all the days of your life. That's just not a great lyric that some artist wrote. No, that comes from the word of God. David sat down and he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalms 23. That you get down the road and, and you discover it wasn't how I thought it was gonna be. And it didn't go along with my preferences at times. But God was faithful to the end. And he saw me through it. And I discovered his goodness on the other side. Church, I promise you, that'll be the reality of your life. The challenge is, is God's explanation is often found in our experience. And so sometimes we, we wanna slam on the brakes with all these questions rather than just continuing to move forward in faith saying, hey God, I know that I know you're with me and that you're for me and you are going to unveil your work in my life as I just trust you in the process. So when I don't understand your, character, uh, your conduct, I'm not going to undermine your character. I think that's a good principle even for some of our relationships. we got to be careful that we just stop jumping to the gun relationally, assuming the worst about people. And we for sure got to do that when it comes to our God. But here's the thought I want, I want to land tonight. And here's the thought I want to land today as we gather. And that is this. God is not in the business of growing fruit. God is in the business of making wine. That's not to say God doesn't grow fruit. It's to say he grows fruit to make wine. God is not in the business of growing fruit. He's in the business of making wine. And how do you make wine? You grow fruit until it's at its peak and ripe and ready and then you crush it. Think about that. You grow fruit, and then you crush it. That's how you make wine. And I'm telling you, this is gonna set somebody free because you've been wrestling with God, and this reality and this truth that is woven all throughout Scripture it is going to unleash someone to really live uh, according to what God is trying to accomplish in their life with, with just a greater enthusiasm and a greater courage knowing that God is up to something you didn't foresee. 
And here's what you have to understand about grapes, uh, about wine, and that is crushing gets the juice out of the grape, okay? So track with me. In addition to that, crushing gets the flesh off of the juice. Another way of saying it is crushing pulls something out of you, and crushing breaks something off of you. This idea that simultaneously as the fruit is crushed, juice juice is pulled out of it, and the flesh of the grape is broken off of it. That'll happen when life strikes. Just know it may not be from God, but it can be used for God. When life strikes, God will lean in, and he is hyper-productive in moments of our pain. And simultaneously, he will pull something out of you while breaking something off of you. So he might pull integrity out of you while breaking exaggeration off of you. Or he might pull purity out of you while breaking lust off of you. And he'll do this over and over again. He'll pull wisdom out of you while breaking foolishness off of you. Right? He'll pull, you know, you know confidence out of you while breaking insecurity off of you. When something is crushed, it is to get the juice out of the grape and is get the flesh of the grape off of the juice. Are you tracking with me? And my question, church, and my question for you, go home and journal about it. And in light of your challenges, in light of your circumstances, in light of your dilemmas, what would happen if you shifted your paradigm to winemaking instead of fruit growing? See, a person who lives with a winemaking mentality, the next time they're crushed, they find purpose in it. They trust God with it. I don't like it, but I trust him. And that's been much of the story of my life. There's been things in my life that I don't like it, but I've grown to trust him. And true faith, listen to me on this, is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. True faith, it's trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And so it's just saying, I'm going to, I'm going to anchor myself to the goodness of our God. I'm going to remind myself of his character when I don't understand his conduct. And I'm going to trust him in the process, even if it's painful and even if it's hard. Because that is where he is most productive. I love this about our God. In fact, you'll see it all throughout Scripture. You know, recently we were with some friends, and we have this friend, Emily Lara. Emily's parents moved over here from Mexico, and they are just a very authentic Mexican family. Emily's mom can throw down in the kitchen. And uh, one day we were talking about Mexican food, which, come on, I am a fan of some Mexican food. Anyone else? I can get down on some Mexican food. And... We're talking restaurants. And I listed off some of my favorite restaurants, and she scoffed, which I was offended, right? And we get into this debate about Mexican food. And Emily made this statement. She said, it's not actual Mexican food. And I was like, that? what does that mean, right? And I'm pushing back on her. And she made this statement. And she said, you have to understand, most Mexican restaurants have tailored their food to the American palate. That's been Americanized is what she said. And I was like, 
I didn't believe her. You want to get in an argument and you just don't believe the person? It's like, I'd love to agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong, right? <laughs> I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you why I'm right and you're wrong, right? And so I'm that person. And then a week or two goes by. Krista and I are, you know, out of town and we go to this restaurant and it, you know, seemed pretty authentic. And we're putting in our order and the waitress asked me the question. So I say, hey, I want the arrows con pollo. And she says, do you want that American style or Mexican style? And I was like, this is a real thing. I wonder when we look at the promises of God, the truth of God, do we want it the biblical style? Or in some way has the gospel been tailored to fit the American palate? And that's not the type of stuff you preach if you're trying to build a crowd, but that is the type of stuff you preach if you're trying to build some Christians. That's what you preach. I mean, if we're going to experience the God of the Bible, we have to live like the people of the Bible. These people had radical, audacious faith that God said it, so be it, I believe it. He's God, I'm not, I trust him. Even when I don't like it, even when it doesn't make sense, I trust him. Him, he's my God, he's my savior. He parted the skies, he stepped into my shoes. He defeated death on my behalf. Again, he has secured my eternity. I trust him. And so I'm not trying to develop a theology around some tailored fit, wonky idea that has been developed for my palate. No, I, give it to me straight. Because we anchor our hope to a, a lineage and a, a legacy of faith where people who came before us, they endured some things. But my goodness, did they experience some great things. I think of like David. God calls him to be king. Finds himself in position. And before you know it, the, the current king wants to kill him. Saul is throwing spears at him. Eventually, there is a a bounty placed on David's head, and David is on the run, being sought out to be murdered. And what's amazing is the entire time David was running from a king, David was becoming a king. You look at Joseph, who has this remarkable dream, and the next day he's, he's thrown into a pit. Then he's sold into slavery. Then he's thrown into prison. And the entire path to his dream was marked by nightmares. But he stays to the course and God reveals himself at the right time and God does what God promised he would do. I mean, you look at Paul who would get down the road and he'd say, hey, for I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. I've laid down my life. I've surrendered it all. I trust Jesus. I've anchored my hope to Jesus. I take my cues from Jesus. That you and I need to be reminded that as a community of faith, we're not just to carry the message of the cross, but we're to carry the marks of the cross. This cross has marked my life. And I believe that there are no crown wearers in heaven who weren't cross bearers on earth. You trust them and that cross becomes a crown. That pain becomes power. That pain becomes purpose. And God does it in your life. But it's going to take some courage 
It's going to take some faith on your part and on my part. Has me thinking about flowers. It's a good idea to buy your wife flowers. Anyone agree with that? Buy your wife some flowers. And uh, I like buying my wife flowers, but I do get frustrated because I can't keep these suckers alive. It's just maddening. And I tend to go for the ones that look really cute and exotic and they have all the features. And then 48 hours later, the flowers are dead. And there is one flower out there that I just cannot stand. And it's this flower right here, the orchids. Now, if this is your favorite flower, don't send me an email. If you want to email some negative feedback, you can send it to Pastor Steve Poe at Northview Church. He would love to take your email. But these flowers drive me crazy. One, they come with a little stick to hold them up because they can't even stand by themselves. In addition to that, there are instructions. The right amount of water and the right amount of sunlight. So you got to move this thing in and out of the window. And the one that I bought actually came with a card that you can download a playlist on Spotify to stimulate its growth. And I cannot keep them alive. And then I got some other flowers at my house. These guys. And I will go to the store and ask the lady behind the counter at Ace Hardware, give me the most lethal yet legal thing that you have behind the counter. I want the one with skulls on it. I want the one that says you have to have goggles and gloves and a mask on, right? Give me the, the poison. And I will be out there spraying these just for hours. And they grow in the most random places, in the crack in the driveway. Like, they grow anywhere. And I can't kill them. When else that's been your experience? It's frustrating. And I was thinking about that because it had me thinking, I want to be a dandelion. <laughs> I'd much rather be a dandelion than precious over there in the window, who we just can't keep alive. <laughs> I'd rather be a dandelion saying, hey, this is where I'm planted. I'm going to remain rooted and come what way, storms or whatever. This is who I am, and I'm going to bloom right where I'm planted. I'm going to be a dandelion. And what would happen if your posture, you know, was one of courage? What would happen if something shifted in your posture that says, I am going to stand my ground, anchoring my life to the cause of Christ and rooted in God's word, and I'm going to see his promises come to pass in my life, come what may, storms are crushing, bring it on, my God's a bigger deal. Bring it on. What would happen if that's your posture? Which is what makes me think of that last verse, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy, which is amazing because all throughout Scripture, wine is symbolic of two things, judgment and joy, which again seems like a great paradox. Can it be both? Yet on the cross, that's what you discover. For the joy, for the wine set before him, Christ endured the cross. And here's what I'm convinced of because this is what I've discovered in my life and here's what I'm convinced you'll discover in your life. Those who endure the most, enjoy the most. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Those who endure the most, well, they enjoy the most. You just get down the road and you realize, man, it came with some pain. I went through some trials. God was faithful through it all. 
And though my fruit got crushed, he produced a wine in my life that I never thought possible. I mean, what has crushed you? What's that thing that still causes some pain? What is crushing you right now? You know, it's amazing if you look at wine aficionados, one thing that they always pay attention to is the year. And what does the year represent? The year it was crushed. And for wine aficionados, the year of its crushing also determines its value. You get down the road and your greatest source of pain becomes your greatest source of power. You get down the road and you discover there's a ministry in your misery. For me, I'm a 1989 Pinot. Because sometimes you get crushed when you're five years old. I'm a 2011 Merlot. I think we're all probably a 2020 Chardonnay because that crushed all of us, right? (laughs) But the year of your crushing, you give it time, you trust God. And he will pull some wine out of you. Because church, again, here's the deal. Jesus makes wine. Jesus makes a lot of wine. And Jesus makes really good wine. And I end with this. Anyone like the game checkers? I like the game checkers because I understand it. I go with the easy games. I play checkers. I play sequence. I play sorry. I don't do all that other stuff that comes with strategies and leaving the board on the table for two weeks so you can memorize your game. I do this. And my favorite thing about the game of checkers is along the way, you're losing some pieces, right? But then there comes that moment where you get to the other side. And when you get to the other side, what do you get to say? King me or crown me. And what does the opponent have to do? They have to take what they took from you. Oh man, this is gonna preach. (laughs) And they have to place it back on you. And I'm telling you, you just walk by faith. You trust God. You anchor your hope and your identity to him and you get through your pain, you get through your agony, you get through your sorrow and you get to the other side and you get to say, King me. An enemy, you have to put everything back on me that you tried to take from me. I'm taking my peace back. I'm taking my marriage back. I'm taking my confidence back. I'm taking my joy back. Come on, King me. And some of you, you just got to get to the other side. You have to get to the other side of your pain to discover a God who takes what the enemy meant for evil and turns it for good. A God who works all things together for the good of those who trust him. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God makes all things work together for the good of those who trust him? Not believe it. Whatever is coming your way. God will use it, and he'll produce something in your life that will add such a value to your life that the world around you will lean in because there's a ministry in your misery.